asymmetric warfare is, is where we're at, and SOF is the perfect answer for it. I'm not talking about something small. I'm talking about a paradigm shift to dive into the gray zone. Welcome to episode 22 of the Irregular Warfare podcast. I am your host, Daphne McCurdy. Today, my co-host Kyle Atwell and I examine the role that civilian oversight can play in preparing special operation forces for the threats presented by great power competition. Our two guests argue that special operations forces will play an important role to address irregular warfare challenges in the era of great power competition. However, limited understanding of these threats among policymakers in Washington, D.C., budget constraints, and outdated authorities hinder SOFT's ability to evolve. Our guests argue that civilian leadership and oversight can help overcome these challenges. Joni Ernst serves as a senator from Iowa. When she was elected in 2014, she became the first woman to serve in federal elected office from the state of Iowa, as well as the first female combat veteran elected to serve in the U.S. Senate. She is the ranking member of the Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Owen West served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict from 2017 to 2019. Previously, Mr. West has worked for Goldman Sachs as an energy trader, as a United States Marine Corps officer with two combat deployments to Iraq, and he is the author of three books on military topics. This podcast is a joint production of the Princeton Empirical Studies of Conflict Project and the Modern War Institute at West Point dedicated to bridging the gap between scholars and practitioners to support the community of irregular warfare professionals. Here is our conversation with Joni Ernst and Owen West. Joni and Owen, welcome to the Irregular Warfare Podcast, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks so much, Daphne. So we're on today to discuss the role of civilian oversight in optimizing the special operations forces. And so I'd like first to turn to you, Joni, and your perch in the Senate. You serve on the Armed Services Committee, and until recently, you were the chair of the Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities. Could you speak to us a bit about what role the subcommittee plays in overseeing the special operations forces? Oh, absolutely. And it has been such an honor. I I served as chair for a number of years. Now I'm serving as the ranking member on the Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities. And Congress does have a very important role in oversight when it comes to Special Operations Command. So the ETC Subcommittee, it it provides oversight of SAW for those Special Operations Forces and their operations that occur all around the globe. And what a lot of our constituents don't realize is is that oftentimes these are very high-risk operations. They're out of the public eye. Uh, They do have strategic implications for U.S. policy, which is why we do have that oversight capacity. So not only are we making sure that it fits within our policy structure, but we're also making sure that uh, SOF does have the necessary resources and authorities to perform those missions. And Owen, how does that oversight play out with the Department of Defense? So who is the civilian oversight and what, what roles do they play and how do they interact with Congress? Well, I was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, and then this strange phrase, low-intensity conflict, which I, which I tried to drop unsuccessfully. <laughs> but, you know, I came in from 20 years in the business world, and so the relationship seemed very natural to me because Congress very much resembled a board of directors. 
And at Goldman, I was schooled to view a board. Now the model has shifted a little bit, but in the the model in the early 2000s, it was to set the future direction of the company. And so Senator Ernst's subcommittee, uh, with whom we worked very closely, uh, you know, I viewed as the board. I mean, number one, you know, she outranked me as a senator, but, you know, also as the first, I think the first combat female in the Senate as a lieutenant colonel, I stopped out at major. So she kind of had dual, dual authority. Um, but I think, you know, I treated that very seriously. And, and, and I'll tell you that, that most people in the Pentagon do. And what I mean specifically is to use Congress as a resource for thought uh, in terms of setting direction. I know Senator Ernst had breakfast with General Clark this morning. And these are not superficial conversations. So I, I was impressed with that part of the relationship. Yeah, I would I would absolutely tag on to that too. And the relationship that Congress has had with the ASD Solix um, since their inception has been invaluable in developing those relationships where you can have one-on-one conversations about what's necessary as far as civilian oversight and then and then the role the the ASD will play with the actual forces themselves. So players like the SOCOM commander, the senior enlisted advisor. So these are all really, really important relationships to make sure that uh, SOF is one has has the right policy to operate under and within, but also that we're able to get the resources that they actually need. For our listeners who may not be familiar with how Washington operates, can you explain some more exactly what that relationship looks like? Are there formal mechanisms in place for you to engage and make sure that you're on the same page about these issues? Yeah, I, I'll dive in there. I do think it's very important that we have civilian leadership as well as Congress's oversight and that we are interacting. And so, of course, we have typical hearings in the full Senate Armed Services Committee, but then we also have our subcommittee, too. Owen's very familiar with our subcommittee process with emerging threats and capabilities. We'll bring in the ASD Solik. Um, Owen had had uh, performed in, in that position, as well as the commanders and the senior enlisted leaders um, from each of those service-connected branches within SOCOM uh, talking about different issues that, one, if they're open hearings, important for the American public to know and understand, or at times we'll meet in the skiff at the Capitol and talk about um, maybe more classified type uh, operations that they are going through, the complications they may have had, and then the opportunities as well. But it's really important that we have not only, um, of course, support from within the Pentagon, but also outside of the Pentagon, whether it's in Congress or the support of the American people. So we need to focus on their mission set, focus, understand the soft truths. Of course, we all know that humans are more important than hardware. That's really important for me. So it's just is understanding that it's communicating that it's developing those relationships, whether it's in a formal hearing setting or whether it's just simply sitting down and having breakfast with a well-respected leader, whether it's Mr. Owen West, the ASD Solik, or with whether it's General Clark, the SOCOM commander. All of that's extremely important. I mean, I, I from my perspective, I spent two years in DC and you know, I'm still not entirely sure how the whole thing works. 
on the edge. But but I will tell you one of the most important constructs in my judgment is the fact we should all remember that it, you know Congress sets the law, and then from the law we can work on policy. We 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 wonks, you know. And I was like a halfway wonk, and then from the policy, someone like General Clark can set a future operating construct. Uh, so to see that in action seamless is actually very, very impressive when you get the law. And that takes relationships, uh, as Senator Ernst indicates, in my judgment. I, I came out thinking that actually this weird phrase you hear when you're a civilian, that, that West, be careful, it takes some time to learn the building. You know, I was dismissive of this at, at first because coming off of out of the Marines and then off of a trading floor, we really had very little bureaucracy. And I had a lot of autonomy. But now I know what that phrase means. And it, it takes a little while to learn the off-book and on-book processes. We talk about relationships uh, between Congress and, and ASD Solik and Congress and SOCOM. What is the current interaction between the ASD Solik and SOCOM? And as far as civilian oversight, are there any current changes that are underway or being considered to restructure the civilian oversight mechanisms that we use in the government right now? So first of all, we should tell your audience that there were many changes that were made since I resigned in 2019. So I'm not you know, fully aware of the, the current, current state because I do believe this is something that is, has been changing, uh, or at least people's perception has been changing you know, every few months or so. When I came in, actually, I thought it was very clear. First of all, you know, I had no operation. I made a very short operational tour with the Marine Corps. And so some of my predecessors, you know, were really knowledgeable and good at operations. And so part of my shop, I felt, was too operational. And so one of the things I did was try to take a step back and, and help people realize that really this was about policymaking, you know, and not helicopter bump plans or, or something. And I don't think this was too endemic, but I, I do think there were some people who were, were, were very highly operational. And really, that's not our role. And the second is, when I came in, uh, General Tony Thomas was at the helm, you know, who, whom I thought was wonderful. And I, I learned a lot from Tony. But I, I saw the, the role of ASD Solik as a partner in terms of trying to build some enterprise value. And then specifically for our role, I thought we could do that by better marrying the capital strategy, you know, with his operational construct. And they're very, I mean, they're, they're, they're hundreds of threads, uh, as you can imagine, of, of spend. You know, this was an area that, that I'd had experience in. So, you know, how much you can actually change things, actually, I think, you know, probably little, but you can make incremental moves that can give momentum to your successors, because in the end, you know, really, it's not about the personalities. I think the, the, the basic goal is to get the organization beyond personalities so that anyone who fills the boots, uh, shoes, can succeed in following the strategic direction, which is really set by the president and the secretary. Right. Yeah. And at Owen's spot on and, and he's worn those boots. So he understands the difference between, you know, those that are shaping the policy for SOF and those that are executing, um, whether it's direct or indirect actions. And so 
having that ASD SOLIC in place has been really important because the the policy and having a civilian working the policy in the Pentagon has been extremely important because SOF is a very small operational force and their budget is roughly about $14 billion a year. I mean, that that's a lot of money, but when you look at DOD overall, it is a very small budget. And so having that, that civilian voice uh, to be kind of that protector of those dollars to shape policy that um, works with that budget, protects that budget, has been really, really important because we don't want to sacrifice SOF and the types of missions that they enable all around the globe. Should there be, you know, deficits in our in our budget where they're looking for dollars, Congress is looking for dollars to save somewhere, we simply can't do it uh, at the expense of SOF. And so ASD Solik has just provided an extremely important voice in that area. And we have tried to strengthen that position through the NDAA, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, over the course of a number of past years. And, and we'll continue to do that because we really need to make sure that that civilian voice at the Pentagon is heard and heard quite loudly. Great. Well, I want to continue talking about aligning our operations and our policy. From your specific vantage points, what would you say are the most significant emerging threats for U.S. national security? And and related, what would you envision the role of soft being in addressing those threats and advancing our policies more broadly? Yeah, that's a great question because we have in recent years seen uh, the national security strategy. We have the national defense strategy that has been released. And of course, we focus a lot on great power competition right now, which would be inclusive of China and Russia. And with that increased focus on uh, great power competition, then we once again have to look at SOF to just employ those unique skills and abilities around the globe because we know that China doesn't exist as a player just in China or the Pacific region. They are all around the globe with their influence. The same is true for Russia. So understanding we can employ soft forces elsewhere, perhaps in indirect actions, uh, is really important. And we know that our soft uh, folks are working with other nations' players too. So they're enabling other countries to stand on their own feet. And, and that's pretty significant. So we use SOF as a tool to deter bad bad behavior by those great power competitors. But it's it's something that we do have to focus on, and asymmetric warfare is is where we're at, and SOF is the perfect answer for it. I came into office, and, and the NDS, uh, the National Defense uh, Strategy of 2017, was in its final draft. Um, I wasn't allowed, uh, although I had a Marine connection, one of the authors uh, who deserves great credit and named Frank Hoffman uh, showed me a draft. And I really do believe that this is one of the best strategies. I had read previous quadrennial reviews and other things. It was very difficult to get through. It, there was no doubt in my mind what my marching orders were having read that document. I mean, and so I, I think the team, you know, General Mattis, Hoffman and others deserve enormous credit because we should remember that in 2016, although everyone, you know, trumpets this truism, 
no one had yet said you need to take your eyes off persistent jihad at the bottom and raise them up and look at Russia and China, but especially China. But at the same time, I knew that, that special operations was a little bit caught because they were the primary force. And, and, you know, if you want to be really blunt about it, if you look at the casualties, soft special operations forces, you know, I think they make up about 5% of the deployed force. And at one point last year, they had about 40% of the casualties. They're really the ones pound for pound who have borne the brunt of the, the war specifically in, in, in Syria, but even in, uh, in Iraq, but even in Afghanistan. And so I thought, well, if they are going to pivot, how are they going to unhook from jihad and then what what senator ernst said which is what i felt when you when you encounter folks like kyle i mean the special forces the way that as it was phrased to me they convert indigenous mass into combat power in 90 countries around the world well we can't unhook them because they, they're pushing this allied network against these big enemies and so i think tony thomas had had very few forces, you know, in terms of just force numbers to, to, to really pivot. And so watching this over the course, and I don't, I don't know where we stand now, but watching this over the course of two years was interesting because I, I also believe that what these special operations forces do really well is solve really hard problems. Now, you've heard this before, but stepping back, this was almost meta because Tony and now Rich have a really hard problem to solve in order to get more troops solving hard problems. So, you know, I'll, 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 we'll all be watching this. I know there's new interim guidance out, but I'm very curious as to what the outlay of the, the soft force will be in two years. In this pivot to great power competition, the, the national security strategy that we're discussing, does this require new soft capabilities relative to the 9-11 era from your perspective? And Joni, is this discussed as a priority in Congress in the context of great power competition? Well, we do see these evolving threats, and we did just talk about uh, the great power competition and things that we see. I mentioned asymmetric warfare, but we also see uh, an evolving type of asymmetric warfare with things like cyber attacks, like solar winds. Uh, we just saw that. And so what is the soft role in those types of activities. And we are still trying to determine where they fit into that specific type of warfare. So it's it's very different. Um, all of our SOF are used to working in gray zone areas. Uh, we understand that as kind of that area, you know, just shy of, of all out war. But uh, as we see things developing like cyber attacks, attacks on our grid. We need to figure out, do we employ soft forces in those matters as well? So SOCOM is continuously evolving and, and they always have to maintain a counterterrorism operation as well while preparing for different types of challenges in the future. So this is an interesting time for us right now. And as Owen had said, you know, it'll be interesting to see where soft falls in another two years with these types of threats that are out there. So, uh, you know, as we look at the, the IO campaigns, information operations, and that type of warfare, it is an area that we really used to excel in, and we are falling farther and farther behind. And so we've suffered from underfunding in administration shifts and priorities changing. 
SOCOM is the lead for IO and, and of course they're always looking at new technologies to combat this and, and deliver and analyze different products. So again, we're going to have to keep our eye on this. And this is why SOCOM falls under the Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee for Oversight is because uh, you are working with the new technologies, the advancements that we see in, in modern warfare and asymmetric warfare. And so it fits nicely together, but it is something that will continually evolve as we move through a new era of asymmetric warfare. In, in 2018, Senator Ernst, you, you may remember you, you hosted me five times, first of all. So thank you, because, you know, you do need some friends <laughs> in Congress, but also you, you need to be able to have meaningful discussions and quickly because everyone's time is so short, right? With all the domestic issues and, and, and all the big budget issues, you know, force off. So it's great to be able to walk into an office where someone can tell you, you know, what the problem or one issue is that, that we need to look at. And so one of those issues we talked about was, you know, I knew in business, it's very difficult once you drift out of your core competencies to start a new business. Even folks who develop a new product but use the same distribution network are only successful 30% of the time. And that, and that hit rate is about the same if you use a new distribution network or try to move overseas to a new country with a similar product. And so I was concerned about moving away from core competencies. And I think it, it was clear to me, by the way, what, what the competitive advantage was. And the competitive advantage was the culture. And others have pointed to that. I think what people haven't pointed to is the comparative advantage. If we level set armies around the world and special operations forces, and that is our NCO Corps and our senior NCO Corps, no one can match the NCO Corps of the United States, especially now. I mean, my gosh, these folks are so impressive. I mean, Pat McCauley, who, who was the command sergeant major when I was there, and now Greg Smith, who is the senior enlisted man partnered with General Clark. They are more than partners. I mean, I certainly deferred to Pat you know, many times. But the other core uh, competency that you mentioned, Senator, was the fact that, you know, if, if we looked around the armed forces, the Army's psychological warfare wing was really the repository of our original talent and experience in this area of, of information operations. And yet, you know, when I visited uh, a couple of times, it was apparent that, that that structurally this had not received the money or let's just call it prestige that, that others had. Um, but now this was, again, you know, business is wax and wane. And now the time was right. But I was astonished to learn that, that these folks are still, by the way, very good. So I think we're in good hands. But I don't know if your audience knows the, the limitations on them were pretty astonishing. I mean, I mean, these folks cannot even fib. And I know from trading against the, the Chinese specifically, but also the Russians a little bit in the global natural gas game, I felt very much like the opponent was playing by different rules. And, and so I do think this is where we get back to Congress. I think ultimately, if we're going to be successful in I.O., this, like cyber defense slash offense, which is really just a gradient, of course, the, the laws uh, in, the, in the latter, of course, we're, we're operating, the civilian community operates with a law that was written in 1986 in terms of the fact you can't extend past your network. We're really going to need some new authorities, and they're overdue. And it's interesting because 
this unfortunately goes in the backdrop of all this surveillance strike that we've been doing so well over a decade. But given the authorities we have, has caused consternation in Congress. And so if you see what I'm saying, on the one hand, we need aggressive permissioning in IO and cyber. On the other hand, it's fair for a senator to say, my gosh, I mean, West, look at this authorization of force you're trying to employ. I mean, it's so gray, you can't even explain it to me in two sentences. So that's another hard problem for for the new ASD and and for Congress. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to throw this out there too. Oh, and you're, you're spot on with that and, and looking at new authorities. And if, if everybody can imagine all of the listeners out there, just imagine, you know, it's pretty tough for senators to recognize and understand kinetic actions, actual warfare, conventional warfare. It becomes very uncomfortable as well when you're getting into an area such as IO or cyber, where it is such a gray area and what constitutes an actual level where you are now engaging in warfare, all-out warfare, not just cyber actions, but how do you retaliate and at what point do you, does it become kinetic? So we've got a lot of issues that we have to tackle. You are spot on. Yeah, Joni, that's actually a question I wanted to ask was in your busy day managing domestic and foreign issues, and then with the focus on on great power competition, how do you and, and other senators and members of Congress you've observed, how much time can they proce- spend to process a complex issue like in a regular warfare uh, conflict? Is it is it feasible to kind of get into the nuance of the detail or is it just too much too much to ask for a principal to actually be able to do? Well, it is a lot of work. And with so many things on our plate, you know, I serve on four different committees, a number of subcommittees, and we're working on various types of bills all the time. That's typical of a senator or a member of the House. So when Owen mentioned getting a topic down to two sentences, That's about what you have to get people an understanding of what's going on in the soft world. And unfortunately, that is not a lot of time, which is why we try to engage them through the Emerging Threats and Capabilities subcommittee, where they can actually come in and listen to folks like General Baudet or or General Clark, you know, Admiral Szymanski, bring them in, sit them down, have that conversation ask those questions. So if they can carve out, you know, half an hour, an hour of time to better understand what SOF is doing, it makes it much easier in granting those authorities to making sure that the appropriations are right-sized for our soft forces. But it is very difficult. I'm just going to be honest about it. It is very difficult. And especially if you're not familiar truly with this world, and how our, our operators are engaging out there, it's really difficult to understand why you need to give authorities or why you need to make sure that the budget is appropriate for them. So you've both mentioned a few of the obstacles that need to be overcome to tackle this new generation of threats. The budget, authorities, sounds even like maybe definitions, just determining what is the threat and and when does it go beyond the threshold and turn into kinetic warfare. 
What are some of the other challenges that you see and and what is the role that you think your respective institutions or former institutions could play in helping us overcome some of these challenges? Well, I'll start then. We should remember, I mean, Senator Ernst mentioned that that SOCOM has a budget of approximately $14 billion, or as Tony Thomas liked to say, the cost of one aircraft carrier and like half the maintenance or something. <laughs> And I do think you get real leverage as a nation from this force, right? For 14, I mean, I thought there was a case where we could double the budget, first of all. But but that's not the way things are done. But I really do think there's an absolute case. But we could talk about that separately. If you look at the growth of this budget, though, you know, from like 5 billion to 14 billion. And then if you look at the numbers, I think... I don't have all my notes in front of me, but I, I believe in about 2000 or 2001, so kind of the pre-9-11 budgets, um, I believe we've quintupled the budget, and I believe we've maybe doubled or, or, or tripled the force, okay? So in many respects, SOCOM resembles a startup. It, re- it resembles a successful startup in, in massive growth phase. And so the way I viewed it was that that SOCOM needed a business partner in the building. And that was made clear by legislation called 922, which more empowered uh, ASD Solik. They were born basically simultaneously. And I think actually the relationship worked very, very well for many years. But we should remember how small SOCOM was before the wars. Now it's a really big enterprise. And so you know, I thought that ASD Solik could directly contribute to institutionalizing the soft role in the joint force. And you could do that through like direct integration because you're the representative and the advocate in the building. The law is written in such a way that there's still some confusion about the reporting chain. And the only other thing I, I, I'll say on this topic is that I do not believe that the Pentagon can tolerate a split chain of command. I worked under one at Goldman for many years. It was, you know, workable enough. I, I just, I don't think it can tolerate a split chain of command. I, I think those are valid concerns. And we are trying to tackle that topic as well and make sure that the legislation that has been passed for ASD Solik, um, understanding, you know, is SOF a separate service branch um, or not, that that is clear. So you are, you're right in that we can't split that out. I, I think that's pretty darn tough. It's hard enough for just a, a regular person on the Hill to understand the role of SOF, and not to mention a lot of the intricacies that come with the chain of command at DOD. So it's it's going to be tough there. One of the other challenges that I think we are facing right now is budgetary. And we've talked a little bit about this. But as we see now, we have a new branch of service known as Space Force. And God bless our guardians. They're going to have to get some money from somewhere. And as we are faced with a constrained environment, budgetary environment, I am just very afraid that other members of Congress will want to go in and ferret out some extra dollars from somewhere to put into our space force. And it can't come from SOF. It can't come from there. They already have a tight budget. They are spread thin. 
they're deploying just consistently around the globe. And while they can do a lot with very little, um, we need to understand that having a stagnant budget is not acceptable in today's day and age, especially as we're bringing on Space Force. Uh, we can't be robbing Peter to pay Paul. And I do think that that will be a challenge in the upcoming year and perhaps in the upcoming NDAA as well. Um, I will say that I believe, just looking at, again, SOF through the lens of business cycles, that SOF is at the beginning of its of its third major transformation. And so this is why I'm highly interested in this. I think the first business cycle you know, was probably just achieving jointness after Desert One, uh, which they successfully did. The, the second would be surveillance strike. If you can imagine how quickly, and, and they, I was even shown a napkin. I don't know if this is true or not, but this is, you know, a wonderful story. A senior enlisted man wrote kind of an enabled operator. If you can imagine a stick figure on the ground with lines pointing up to drones and satellites, uh, that really does occur today. And so this force has iterated and innovated and developed a capability that none can match worldwide. And when you see it up close, it's astonishing. I guess I am concerned that part of this force is caught in what's called the innovator's dilemma in business terms, meaning it is now a mature force. And so any iteration comes with less marginal gain. And so, in other words, much of this may be handed over to others so that soft can move on to its third cycle and third major transformation. And I'm not talking about something small. I'm talking about like a paradigm shift to dive into the gray zone, because right now the enemy has chosen not to fight us hot. And so when I hear things like that, now that we're, we were worried enough about F-35, now we're worried about like a seventh gen fighter being outmatched by a seventh gen Chinese jet. I'm just baffled because that's not what's happening to us every day. And it's certainly not what's happening to everyday Americans who are on the front lines of this information cyber war. Uh, We have municipalities being held up without a gun. They're now holding up our hospitals and Americans are being attacked in their living rooms on their social media platforms. And so soft is the proper force to take this on. But but it's got to scale. It, it, it can't be as limited as it is today. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time here. And I just have to say that after all the headlines we read about the fraught politics and polarization in Washington, it's really refreshing to hear about your experiences collaborating and working together, even in different branches of the government. I'll tell you, conversations with Senator Erst are always good and a lot easier. Um, because as I said, I, I, I wouldn't be dismissive of this. I, I do think, and other people have written on this subject, military service in, in Congress writ large. But I do think it's important that we put, that Congress puts its best folks on these committees, because that's your, your, your kind of your liaison Well, and I I appreciate it as well and having the opportunity just to visit about something that is very near and dear to me and a community that I've long been tied to and and truly appreciate. And and Owen, I want to give kudos to you too, because I know that you believe in this as well, but leadership by walking around. And I do think it's important to keep those relationships open, conversations open sitting down just, for example, with General Clark this morning and just having that one-on-one discussion is very helpful where we don't have to have the judgment, you know, coming from 
uh, outside, we can just have an open conversation about, you know, what Congress expects, what they don't expect, and just be honest about it. I also enjoy getting to know, you know, the, the forces that are engaging and getting out there and meeting the men and women that are behind these operations and just truly appreciate their service and commitment to our great United States. And you've worn those boots, Owen. I've worn those boots. And I think it's, we just need to make sure that we continue putting the right people in the right places, whether it's a command team out there serving in one of our service branches in SOCOM, whether it's at JSOC, whatever it might happen to be, and in the ASD SOLIC position as well. Well, thank you both for joining us today and sharing your insights on this important issue. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to episode 22 of the Irregular Warfare podcast. We release a new episode every two weeks. In our next episode, Nick and I discuss the integration of conventional and irregular operations on the battlefield with Major General John Brennan, Commander of the U.S. Army First Special Forces Command, and Dr. John Arquilla from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School. After that, Andy and Shauna examine the role of air power in irregular warfare with retired Air Force Lieutenant General Thomas Trask and Dr. James Kiris from the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies at Air University. Please be sure to subscribe to the Irregular Warfare podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow and engage with us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. One last note, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and do not represent those of West Point or any other agency of the U.S. government. Thanks again. We'll see you here next time.